Welcome to Smart Water Solutions Podcast. I am Hakim El Fadil. This is episode number 44. Today I have with me Steve Critch, the president of Wyland Foundation. This foundation has been active over three decades in the United States. They have developed very interesting tools how to save water and raise awareness of the environment, I mean, ocean, rivers, etc. If we look to the water cons- consumption across the industry, we always or we usually found farming is using more than 40 and sometimes up to 70% of the water consumption compared to the other sectors. They, I mean, Wyland Foundation developed a very good program by combining different scientists and artists to raise the awareness of farmers, how to get the, the benefits of their climate, of their water resource, and to have sustainable business running and I know also develop very interesting program and museum for kids because that's the next generation that's what we but what they will face the, the water challenge in the future and and also they develop uh, very good um, tools for the normal citizen like us how to save the water it's like there is a very interesting application they have um, that everyone can can um, look to it in their homepage and uh, within those decades, they have learned so many things across different states in the U.S. Because different states, they have different environment, different environment, different climates, and different water resources available. So this learning could also be levered to other continents, I would say. So, Steve. So, how is the weather so far in the? Where are you located in California? I think. Yeah, Southern California. Yeah. Uh, between San Diego and Los Angeles, not too yeah. bad. I can imagine the weather is sunny. Yeah? You don't have that, like. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. I gotta say, I grew up here, and uh, uh, it was the weather was good, but uh, it was very smoggy in those days when I grew up. And they actually fixed it, believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah, it was incredible. The uh, the skies during the summer would just be thick and brown and, um, it was hard to breathe. You'd have to stay indoors for, um, these, uh, for smog alerts. And it was like Beijing. That's interesting. Cause I mean, you remind me one time I had one colleague in the U S and I discussed with him. I, I mean, I was really so much negative about chemical company because I've been working in, in, in the chemical industry. And he told me, Hakim. The way we are living right now, compared to 20 or 30 years ago, it's much better in terms of environmental improvement. Much better. Yeah. yeah. And um, it, I mean, back in the 70s, when I was a, really little, uh, there was wholesale dumping of chemicals into waterways. And we had famous incidents like um, the Cuyahoga River fire. You know, there was so much debris, and chemicals oil on the Cuyahoga River that it would break and it would spontaneously combust. And uh, so that, I mean, I, I think if the writing wasn't on the wall, then <laughs> then uh, we have no right to life as a species. But um, yeah, things were, were a lot different. And um, in Los Angeles, the, you know, they formed the uh, South Coast Air Quality Management District. And you know, they, they crack down on automobile exhausts and um, 
that really made a difference. You know, there was a lot of regulation that went into place and a lot of people were upset by it. But at the end of the day, and this is one of the things that I point to when I say, hey, this this does work if everybody gets involved, is that our skies are a million times cleaner than they used to be. Yeah. And I used to be a backpacker and I'd go up to the, uh, the high Sierra mountain range and it was on the high desert plateau and uh, during summer and I'd come back into the Los Angeles basin and you would descend literally into this haze of brown after coming out of these blue skies up in the mountains. It was very, very real. And there was a very real tangible change that's occurred since there was government intervention. So I, I do point to that as an example of government having a positive effect. It's easy to take cheap shots at, at government. I think it's one of the easiest things to do because it's, it's so fallible and there's so many problems with it, but there are not too many other mechanisms that work as well when it comes together, especially for something that's not uh, market driven, like clean air. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's no, there's no profit in clean air, <laughs> no short-term profit, yeah, but there, <laughs> there's a lot of cost to it. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that, that, that's 100% true. I mean, I was discussing in, in the couple of months ago with my cousin, we had an idea like, is it possible to put price on CO2 emission for um, the individuals, not the industry? So yes. in a way, there are some people that they, they don't have enough money to afford trip outside their continent, for example. They can sell their CO2 emission to other people who really have Porsche or any kind of <laughs> exhaustive car. So there was kind of idea, but I was um, while we were discussing, we realized that actually the industry, they are working like that. They have minimum, maximum. And if they would like to exceed that amount of CO2 emission, they need to pay for that. Yeah, and I, I know they've been trying to make that work for a long time in various countries with carbon offsets, and uh, it's tough and it's complex. And I think the most challenging thing is that smog you can see because you can see particulates in the atmosphere. Um, CO2, it's invisible to most people, and you know it's a long-term harm. And with, with the smog that we had in Los Angeles, you would collapse because it would get in your chest and, you know, you would, sometimes you would have to go to the emergency room. So it was, it was a clear short-term impact and it was recognized and it was addressed and it was dealt with, but CO2 is, is like a, you know, it's like a creeping cancer you don't really see it until it's too late. And, you know, then it becomes much more difficult to reverse. And then the solutions, because it's so pervasive, are really challenging because it's a, it's, uh, it's a complete overhaul of economies and how markets work and, you know, uh, carbon offsets and trading and, you know, sequestering this invisible uh, gas, right? It's a lot for people to process and to take, you know, and, you know, and, and if, if there's a pushback against science, then, you know, science is really the only thing that we have that can measure and, and demonstrate and prove, 
you know, the impacts of CO2 emissions on, on climate. And if we're not trusting science, there's not a lot we can do. So um, it, it's a tough one. Everyone's yeah. got to be in, into it, you know? Yeah, that's, that, that's, um, that's a very good point. And, and, and I was, I mean, I was asking myself, I mean, if we look to solving problem only from the angle of science, I wouldn't have a good image like you when I read your profile, for example, because there are so many, so many pieces of the information that you need to understand in order to really understand what's going on in environment. Yeah. So for, for instance, water, water, for example, I always approach it in a way to find the technology to solve the problem, but I never zoom really out to see, okay, is there other things that we can do really to solve the problem? And then where do you come? And this brings me to the question, I mean, uh, Steve, what was your career? Has, how has, has been shifted or, I mean, um, directed to the environment and also to water um, um, solutions? Sure. I never came at environmentalism as a water guy. That was not my focus. Um, my focus was you know, getting a grasp on the, the, the more systemic uh, aspects of how the, of environmentalism and how everything works together. And um, I think that took a longer time for me. Uh, my background was uh, a newspaper reporter and I was just a, you know, a basic community journalist here in Los Angeles. Um, and I would cover, um, you know, I would cover shootings and, uh, you know, the, the general sort of tragedies that occur you know, every day in a large city. And, uh, but I always had an interest in the environment. I was not particularly good at science. Um, uh, however, the more my interest in the environment grew, the more my interest in science grew because I understood that um, to make sense out of, out of our environment, I really had to get better to understanding the relationships, um, you know, with water cycle and carbon cycle, um, how uh, markets work, um, what consumer demand is. It's really complex. And in fact, it's one of the great interdisciplinary uh, subjects, I think, to, to study because um, how we manage our environment is affected by consumer demand. It's impacted by, you know, um, seasonal changes in weather. And obviously it's now affected by climate. It's affected by manufacturing. It's in fact in, impacted by everything. So, um, uh, so I ended up working for uh, Weiland, uh, this famous artist uh, here in um, uh, Southern California, uh, I, when I was writing a, a, an article for a newspaper about him and I was learning about what he was doing by creating these large scale marine life murals all around the world. And I thought that was really fascinating that he was kind of this Johnny Appleseed guy who would go from city to city and he would find one of the biggest buildings in a city and he would, uh, he would paint these gigantic murals of humpback whales or um, uh, gray whales on the sides of these buildings. And uh, 
people love the art and they loved him. He was a very charismatic, magnetic person. And, um, and he connected with people. And when I met him, I thought, wow, this is somebody who's seems to um, have an audience that isn't just the traditional, you know, environmental crowd, you know, <laughs> because it's really easy to preach to the converted, you know, that expression, right? So, but it's another thing to get the attention of uh, people that otherwise wouldn't care. So what Wyland was doing was he would go into, you know, New York or Chicago or Nice, France or Bundaberg, Australia. I mean, anywhere. And he would put these murals, you know, in the busiest intersection in the busiest parts of the city. And it was just undeniable. Nobody could look at those and not say, oh my gosh, is that what those really look like? You know? And I think it's that kind of visceral impact that, that, starts to change that consciousness, if not making anybody a, a quote environmentalist, it, it opens a window where they become a bit more receptive and, and they become a bit more inclined to throw some politics out the window uh, or aside, not out the window, uh, but to hear a message. And, and I think that's a great way of, playing a role in this information inspiration sort of process right so um so i thought wow i could i could do a lot of good working with somebody like this because my background was media and communications and writing and uh, so uh i kind of threw in with wyland and uh, we formed this really great collaboration where I, i would write books for him and uh uh, put programs together, and uh, I even uh, 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 drafted up um, TV shows. We did some work with Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, and so it was always one of these things where, you know, he had a, a great voice and had a great impact, and I had a, a tremendous passion for the environment and an interest in it. So, so we we've collaborated and we throw ideas back and forth. And that became, after a while, it became like, well, how many whales are we really gonna save, you know, uh, if we don't push ourselves a little harder and try to connect people further upstream to understand that they do have a relationship and an impact on these animals downstream. So, uh, as time went on, we we would observe what's what was going on with these big dead zones that were occurring in some of our Gulf uh, Coast communities. Um, I think back in the early 2000s, uh, in the uh, Gulf of Mexico, these dead zones, uh, these oxygen depleted uh, areas where they would have these big algae blooms and algae die-offs, uh, these things would occur, and they would be the size they would be you know five six hundred miles across the um the algae would die and then this process of the bacterial decomposition it would suck all the oxygen out of the water nothing could live there uh fish would die so you'd have no marine mammals um you know uh, fisheries would die off you know I, I mean there was no there was no market anymore in that area because uh there was no fish to fish they were dead so 
this was a seasonal thing, but it was it, it was because of what was happening upstream, um, runoff from fertilizers, um, pesticides, all of these you know uh, chemicals uh, and nutrients would run down like from the Mississippi River down into the Gulf of Mexico, and so it would accumulate and accumulate and accumulate, and it would ultimately the problem would just be migrated out to sea. Right. So Wyland came to me one day and um, this is about 15 years ago. And he said, I want to go on a five year tour for clean water. And I love this story because it was just something that came to him. And I don't think, you know, I don't think either of us fully understood the implications of all of this. And in fact, I questioned him a lot. And I said, well, you know, how, how do you plan on doing this? How are we going to pay for it? How, you know, we have to take time off from work because he was a working artist and, um, and, you know, why are we doing it? And he was, he was really hell bent on this. And, um, and so, you know, we kind of scoped out a plan and it really became this long this long period of discovery. So we put a little team together and we would do these tours where we would go down the Mississippi River and we would stop in, you know, Jackson, Mississippi or um, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, um, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, New Orleans. And, and we would have these little events where he would paint and we would have scientists and naturalists and a, a little mini festival, right? And what we were learning was that everybody, you know, had grandparents and great grandparents who, you know, quite often were from these areas and grew up along the river and it was part of their family and part of their legacy. And it just became clearer and clearer to us that that there was a huge connection between everybody and you know these these waterways you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. and and we got more involved and um we built some partnerships we started working with uh un environment and um built uh, curriculum for classrooms and we did other tours we went to the east coast and the west coast and and all along the way we gathered information and picked up information and and it just became so clear how important this was and that that there was a gap in the way we looked at what we did upstream and what the impacts were downstream yeah, that's, so, exa that's exactly what you mentioned oh, sorry go ahead no, I'm sorry, please. Yeah, that's exactly what is fascinating. I mean, the program that you have. And um, um, if I don't understand correctly, do you have program for grown up and for kids, all of them? Yeah, so we don't, we don't segment the way a traditional nonprofit probably would. Um, part of what this foundation does is it's very creative. And, you know, it, it's science based. Uh, but it is very creative. And so we tend to be more about fostering the sense of being, you know, a creative solution oriented steward of our marine resources. So we, we have, you know, art, we have a national art challenge for, for students. Yes. Where, you know, uh, uh, students at classrooms pick various uh, water issues and they'll depict them 
through the arts and uh, they'll write mission statements, why it's important to them, but we also encourage them to do research on that. Um, uh, we have a traveling clean water mobile learning center, which goes all over the US into uh, farming communities and places where uh, communities don't, maybe they don't have access to, uh, you know, a, a traditional world-class brick and mortar science museum. So this, this vehicle is a thousand square feet. It's got an onboard movie theater. Um, it's got a, a running river inside. People can make it rain. So they learn about uh, marine biodiversity. They learn about water as a shared resource. They learn about how cultures settle uh, along rivers and lakes and places where there is water and the, the social impacts of what occurs over time, you know, as communities move from an agrarian culture to becoming an urbanized culture uh, to handle the, the growing population. And as a result, you have more pollution, you know? So you take the thing that was so great to begin with and was made it so livable and it becomes such a good thing that you love it to death. That's what happens. And that's what we're what we're working on right now. Uh, our largest program is called the National Mayor's Challenge for Water Conservation, and we work with every state in the United States. And we have uh, we've had over a thousand mayors, U.S. mayors, participate. But they take we encourage them to take a leading role and elevate the profile of water issues in their community, challenge their residents to make small changes in their lives that can benefit the health of our waterways and tributaries and ultimately, of course, our coasts. Um, and then we have prizes for them and all that. But the, the cool thing with, with these programs or like the mayor's challenge is that, you know, the residents can see in real time how well their city is doing with the number of pledges. And so, so there's a real participatory uh, effect here. And uh, that's one of the things that we've learned as we put these types of programs together is that um, you know, we wanna create a sense of urgency. We wanna create a sense among all people that they're agents of change, that, that um, you know, the world's not gonna you know, end in a hailstorm of fire, you know, that they're part of the change. And we're just encouraging them to move along this continuum where they're feeling more inspired, more hopeful. I know that's always a challenge to feel more hopeful, especially with, you know, whatever you look for in social media, you're going to find, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So if you want to find that the world is going to end tomorrow, you're going to find that on social media. Yeah. So part of what we do is we, we try to uh, cut through the static, give people a sense of hope, you know, and, um, uh, get them informed and get them to, you know, make some small positive changes. And we have all sorts of platforms to do that. But we also give them a way to measure the impacts too. So we're not just saying, you know, this behavior is bad. This is good. Go do it. Everything will be great. You know, it, it would be like any reasonable conversation that, that, that a person has, like we're having right now. And we, we, we do have kind of a position in the foundation and Wyland, you know, we, we do have a positive outlook, you know, um, negative outlooks, they don't necessarily attract people, you know, while you can't deny that, that everything is not perfect. Um, 
I think we have to look at what good outcomes are and we have to be able to state what a good outcome would be and then map out a path to get there. And so this foundation is more about, we like to say it's more about building a, a community. And you know, our, our goal is to broaden our community, broaden our impact. Um, we do some international work, um, not quite so much right now, but you know, our plans are to uh, you know, take this methodology and expand it into other, other countries um, and uh, provide our services. Um, a lot of what we do also is uh, we've got digital tools that people can utilize so they can, um, you know, research types of uh, activities like, here's a simple one, um, you know, we're, uh, anybody who lives in these, in a large urban community, you know, uh, there's concrete and asphalt, lots of it. Um, one of the things that we encourage more and more is finding ways to uh, remove concrete, replace it with you know permeable pavers, um, anything that can uh, promote that can slow down urban runoff, promote groundwater recharge, um, mm -hmm. and rebalance our our uh, nature and our cities. Um, that is something we can do. Um, but those are the types of uh, projects that you know people can do at home. You know, assuming they have the resources to do that, of course. You know, um, uh, you know, native plants. Um, a lot of the things that we propose are pretty are fairly simple. But if people understand uh, what their benefits are, they can have a bigger impact. You know, it's a lot. It's a lot like. It's like a diet plan. If you understand, you know, the, uh, the basics of body metabolism and human health and, um, uh, you know, how your body processes sugar, it's a lot easier to stick to a diet because you understand, uh, you know, you understand the physiology, uh, and it's the same thing with environment. And so that kind of goes back to what you and I were talking about at the beginning of this is, you know, it, it's not immediately clear, you know, how our environment works because mm -hmm. everything is so interrelated. You know, we talked about the economy and we talked about, uh, you know, uh, weather patterns and we talked about, you know, consumer demand and, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. And when we started um, getting more involved in the water conservation front, Wyland and I co-authored a book called, it's, it's called Hold Your Water, 68 Things You Need to Know to Keep Our Planet Blue. And there wasn't, this was uh, early 2000s, and there wasn't a ton of uh, literature out there on this subject. There were some great writers, um, Maud Barlow and, you know, others who were like really amazing, but there wasn't a lot. So the research that we did uh, and granted, we're not academics, but the research that we did, it, it was a lot like peeling an onion. You know, the more you peel an onion, it just keeps going. And the more you learn about water, which to most people is just this element that you turn on a tap, the water comes from the tap, and it's all done for you. But there's so much more to it getting the water to your house and the energy that's required to pump that water. Or if you live in an arid region, you know, 
dealing with um, water ras rationing or desalination, or, you know, there's so much more to it. In the state of California, where we live, 20% um, of our energy usage just goes to pumping water, just pumping it. 20% is higher. Yeah, 20%. You know, we use about 80% of our water goes to growing our food. So, um, you know, there's, you know, um, and a lot of that food is exported. So we're actually exporting our water. You know, uh, it helps our economy, but then you have to take a harder look at the food that you're growing and seeing if it's really worth the export at the cost of the water availability when we're dealing with, you know, water rationing and shortages and drought. You see what I'm saying? So it gets incredibly complex. But that being said, I think people, you have to get people to buy in on the fact that th this isn't a problem. This isn't, um, our, our, these water resources are not guaranteed. Yeah, a healthy environment is not guaranteed. Everybody has to play a part in it. Um, but people tend to react negatively uh, if you kind of come at it directly like that. So we like to show people how beautiful things are, the value of the resource. And then we give them ways to learn more about it and ways to um, you know, start getting a little bit more involved. We leave it to other organizations to lobby, pass laws. Uh, that's not our role. Mm -hmm. Our role is to build a broad coalition of people across, you know, different uh, belief systems and find a way to engage them. So they're interested that this is something we all have in common, clean air, healthy water, you know, it, it transcends almost everything, you know, all belief systems. We can all agree that we need clean air and healthy water. And we find that that's a, that's a good place to start. It's definitely, it's, it's, it's really, it's a good, I mean, I never see it like that, which is, it comes down to the beliefs, really to the belief system. And, and I can imagine, I mean, um, I have no idea what, what would be the numbers if just by uh, raising the awareness of the people, this incremental, let's say, optimization of using the water daily. So you, do you have any number how much, that's really influenced the water conservation per any state, for example? Well, you know, we do, we've done some studies and assessments on the programs that we do. Um, uh, we, we do find, of course, that people that are involved or engaged with our program do come away with, uh, uh, with more awareness about the problem and a, and a sense that they can do something about it. And um, we have those numbers uh, available if anybody wants them. They can just email me at stevec at wyland.com. But, um, you know, we, we do try to measure our, uh, our, our programs um, so we can make adjustments. But, um, you know, I think obviously this, the, 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 the amount of water that we use is just staggering. Um, you know, uh, a pound of beef, for instance, you know, uh, to, uh, to, to create that, you know, it takes thousands of gallons of water. 
to make uh, you know, one pound of beef. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is imported water, you know, uh, so it's, it's a water heavy resource. And one of the things that we are advocates for is, um, you know, understand for people to understand that and understand that if you can reduce you know, your protein intake by any amount, an ounce, <laughs> that can have a tremendous difference. I mean, if it's, um, I, I'm not quite sure what the numbers are. It's in the order of thousands of gallons uh, per pound of uh, beef. So, you know, you reduce it by a few ounces, you know, you're, you're, you're per capita cutting back in your water use by hundreds of gallons. Um, you know, a, a, a leaky faucet, for instance, um, can can expend 10,000 gallons of water in a year. You know, those, those are pretty common statistics. But when you think of the fact that we have um, billions of people on earth and, um, you know, in, in um, industrialized nations, we are consuming so many resources that in industrial nations alone, if we can reduce our consumption and our intake by just, you know, uh, a single percentage, you know, um, we can dramatically increase the availability of resources around the world. That's absolutely, I mean, this is also what brings me to the, to the book that you mentioned, which is Hold Your Water and uh, 68 Things You Need to Know to keep our planet blue. I mean, I would like to, you as a co-author, I would like to give us some, some brief ideas that have been shared in that book, which is very, I mean, for me, I find it, it's very interesting. And I, I assume it's, it can be read by also by non-scientists. It should not be. Uh, oh yeah, no, yeah. it's absolutely for non-scientists because it was written by non-scientists and uh, um, it has plenty of facts uh, about water and, uh, you know, the, it, it has a lot of um, wow type of facts, but, you know, I think people will learn about, you know, the true cost of water and uh, it's heavily, heavily subsidized, heavily subsidized. You know, we get water bills uh, for, you know, we use thousands of gallons at our homes in a month and our water bills are, you know, under a hundred dollars, you know, um, and when you think about the, the, what it takes to move that water, you know, for the infrastructure to deliver it, get it to your house, um, it's pretty incredible the, you know, to do that. If you had to pay full market rates for that, it would just be astronomical. So I think people are misled a little bit uh, here in the US. You know, I, I, I can really only speak from that perspective, but, um, they they don't truly understand the full value of it um but uh i think they would um the more they learn about about this um and of course you know the the cheaper it is the easier it is to waste too i'm not an advocate for for charging more but i know human nature and i know if you get it for free doesn't cost you anything to discard it, you know, but ultimately we all have to pay. So it kind of does, it creates a, a vicious circle. Um, 
you know, the water will run off in the streets into the storm drains. Um, you know, it's basically free water. No one's looking at it like that. Um, but in books like Hold Your Water that we've done, you know, we, we do get into the, the different costs from uh, region to region and country to country. And you can see a big difference. Um, you know, it's not to say that we don't have problems here in the US, but, uh, you know, a lot of people are familiar with what happened in Flint, Michigan, you know, issues in Newark, New Jersey with, uh, with water, but, um, you know, also our, our system pays to um, uh, keep that water clean and uh, ideally tamper free. Um, we get a lot of benefits from the government uh, for, for these water systems. Um, and it does kind of surprise me too that, you know, uh, you know, these bottled water companies will charge $4, you know, in a place where, the, you know, you have the water for free, <laughs> you know, almost. You That's know? Also, the, it's also, I mean, I always ask myself, is, is it not possible that I can pay extra money for the water supplier to get really high quality? And I know that there is not too much big difference between the bottled water and the tap water, I would say. There's not. In fact, yeah. the, the water from the tap is probably safer because it's regulated you know there's um i don't know about the flavor <laughs> you know, that's a whole different thing but so, in, so in, yeah yeah in wayland foundation one thing you mentioned which is when it's like interdisciplinary when you combine different people from different disciplines try to explain something um to the consumer and um i mean that's that itself is very interesting it's very hard Um, that's actually what is lacking also when I look to academia, for instance, and also the industry, when the approach problem, the approach is from one angle, from chemical standpoint, or from biology or from the mechanical standpoint. So mm-hmm. it's really where you find different people from different disciplines, they sit together and try to look how they can solve that problem. Yep. So can you just talk us a little bit how you do this in Wyland Foundation and also how you develop tools, education tools to different consumers because i assume that the way how you talk with the farmer it's may be different the way how you talk with someone who has a bakery for example or coffee shop sure um forbes magazine wrote an article about what the wyland foundation was doing with we have corporate partners we've we've we work with uh toyota um we work with the united states environmental protection agency their water sense uh group the National League of Cities, um, Toro Company, and municipalities all across the U.S. But um, Ford Magazine said that what we do gives, really leverages the, the specific uh, skill sets of all these different organizations. Um, and so it's kind of a force multiplier. You know, we don't try to do it ourselves. Um, we say the more the merrier and um and everybody brings their expertise their um their communication skills into these programs so we reach larger audiences our our mayor's challenge uh probably reaches 15 million people a year you know through the combined uh efforts of our our networks of partners of all the cities we work in. So we're, we're really keen on 
that force multiplier effect, getting everybody involved. We have just worked very hard over the years to develop platforms that are reliable and trustworthy. And, um, and I think that also is part of the social contract we have with, with our partners, that they know we're gonna do it right. We know we, they know that we uh, stand by uh, our principles, what we believe in and the change that we wanna see in the world. We want to see a world that looks like, like, you know, this, this screen behind me, you know, with live corals, you know, uh, the coral bleaching is occurring all over the place, uh, you know, and it's, it's a number of things, you know, it's sedimentation, the water, it's, uh, you know, changing climate, but that's our goal. Our goal at the end of the day is clean water, healthy oceans, you know, for, for us, obviously, but the next generation, next generation, et cetera, you know, we, uh, we inherited this, this, this earth that we have, and we want to leave it in as good, if not better of a place than, than what we got. So, um, uh, so yeah, it's really about people coming together, uh, to make a huge difference. Yeah. And for that, the, the next generation, as you mentioned, and why I'm while I'm studying the your platform, I find also something is very interesting that you try to connect scientists with the teacher so that they can really transmit the 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 communication to the kids to the to the teacher so that he can also teach the the, the kids mm -hmm. how really to to deal with the water and to be aware what they may need to solve when they're growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And we want the, we want the kids involved and to whatever extent they can be. Um, but it does start with the teachers. So, you know, if we can keep the teachers excited and we're always looking for ways to do that. Um, if we're giving them little grants for their classrooms or, you know, supporting them in any way, or just being advocates for them in general, teachers have a hard job and they love what they do. Um, but they have to deal with bureaucracy and they have to deal with school boards. They have to deal with all kinds of parents because I'm a parent. I've yeah. got, uh, you know, I've got 11 year old boys. Um, they have to deal with a lot. And from our perspective at the Wyland Foundation, we, we want to support them and, um, you know, give them as, if not resources, we want to give them encouragement to, uh, um, to you know, share about the environment, get their kids excited about it. Whether it's through the art, you know, that someone like Wyland can create, or it's through bringing a museum directly into their school. And our, you know, our our programs like our our Clean Water Mobile Learning Center, it's not just a van, it's not just a bus. We, it's a thousand square feet of. Uh, uh, just amazing exhibits and this we're building a new theater right now inside that uh, the kids will walk into this onboard theater and they're surrounded by uh, by 12 75 inch screens all the way around them so when uh, a whale swims by them in this theater it'll swim it'll be you know 25 feet swimming all around them and uh, uh, 
bubbles will be uh, surrounding them. They'll basically we're we're transforming this experience into this this virtual all terrain explorer where these kids can learn through multimedia, hands on, all about water and why it's important. Now, the other thing you asked about were were the type of tools that we provide, and uh, um, we have you know. Uh, water use calculators where you can measure and, and really get a sense of what your impact is by virtue of the, uh, the, the water that you use, the waste you produce, you know, all of that. Um, and uh, uh, we have another uh, digital tool called My Volunteer Water Project, and that's a way for people to work in teams too. You can do an entire citywide project and uh, everybody can do a little part on that. But um, we'll show them how to do it um, and give them background on it. And they'll also get results. Um, for instance, uh, one of the projects that people can do with our platform are tree plantings. And we'll show them the right kind of tree for the right kind of uh, uh, geography and climate. So they'll plant the right kind of tree. Um, and we'll show them by the size of the tree, how much groundwater it'll recharge, how much carbon it'll sequester, um, uh, how much uh, runoff it'll reduce, you know, and, and we can quantify and calculate that. So you're not just doing a good thing and you're not just beautifying your community. We're, we're gonna show you the right way to beautify it, the right type of um, plant life to plant and why that's beneficial to the overall health of our waterways and our coasts. So that's just another tool that we provide. That's very interesting. Is it developed with the help of geology, biology, so many disciplines that really help you with this? Yeah, we work with engineers, we work with scientists. Uh, there's a famous scientist that um, is on our advisory board named Dr. Sylvia Earle, and she is a, uh, um, National Geographic Explorer in Residence. She used to run uh, the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, she's been featured on, on TV and um, uh, very, very famous. Um, but uh, we work with her uh, and gosh, um, all, all sorts of people from all stripes, teachers, scientists, engineers, uh, authors, filmmakers, artists, everybody comes in and, you know, has a role to play with us. We like it like that. You know, we're not traditional. Um, it is about engagement. And, um, you know, if you try to put a label on the Wyland Foundation, it's kind of hard to do it. You know, we know we care about one thing that's, uh, you know, the health of our waterways and our oceans. And we're going to do whatever it takes to you know, bring people into this community to care about it. Yeah. No, it, it's really, I mean, it's pop up so many things, so many ideas in my head, and I can't imagine how complex it would be really. And, and well, this also brings me to an idea when I was thinking, okay, right now there is so many water solutions in the markets and people, they start also to adopt those water solutions in-house but it also depends on the region to region which water technology makes sense to have it and which doesn't make sense to have it from economical standpoint and also from environmental standpoint. 
Mm-hmm. So right now I'm talking. I was also thinking from 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 different perspective. And um, this brings me to the question, which is: um, I know that you, it's 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 a platform, it's a growing, it's a good thing. That's as you mentioned, it it takes so so much time and energy to build the trust. And um, you have different programs and tools. So what are the let's say the innovative um, tools or ideas that you are working right now with your team? One of our uh, latest programs is called Streams of Hope, and it is it's it's a social program where we're encouraging people to uh, adopt local waterways um, and um, and then use our other tools to uh, to become caretakers of those. So, for instance. Um, it's a web-based application. Uh, I think we're launching it in a couple of months, but uh, I, it's 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 a program where you can really showcase, you know, your love for these places, um, and uh, anybody can do it. Um, but it does put some context onto, um, you know, let's say it's a, a local lake. Uh, uh, this this app will show you where it is in relation to the uh, the largest watershed and local rivers and um, and the the upstream impacts that uh, you can have by working to save and conserve it. So that's one of the things that we're working on. And then as far as uh, you know, external technologies. Um, yeah, we, we leave that to the engineers and the legislators and all of that. But, you know, we, uh, we are aware, for instance, in the U.S. that, you know, our, our water-based infrastructures are in need of a complete overhaul. Um, so, and, and of course, there'll be technical upgrades uh, that would go with those. A lot of the infrastructure in the U.S. was built, you know, I think close to a hundred years ago, you know, under the WPA and, uh, and Franklin Roosevelt. Um, and the, the cost of replacing that infrastructure is about a trillion dollars here in, in the United States. And I, um, um, I think a lot of people want to, you know, the, you can on technology to improve things, of course, but, you know, at some point, technology and conservation come together. You know, uh, smart conservation reduces stress on resources. It reduces stress on infrastructure. Um, good infrastructure, you know, uh, allows us to have access to the resources. And those those two things together um you know, equate to smart management of the resources, good conservation, smart technology. We're advocates of both. You know, we don't, we're not all on the conservation side. They really have to come together for this to be effective and, um, and for us to get good outcomes, you know, uh, all these things have to come together, you know, good governance, uh, smart conservation, great technology um that's that's the key to a healthy future for everybody yeah 
And when, when you mentioned smart conservation, I'm thinking right now about there is so many stuff or electrum, I mean, electrical stuff or fridge, whatever we find in supermarkets, we always find the energy consumption and also the energy that has been deployed to or used to construct that engine. But I never saw so far, maybe I'm wrong, I never saw anything put in the supermarket and they put down kind of label. Is it really optimized in terms of water consumption or over consumed? Because you can have two different apple and one farmer really optimized the way to use water to get an apple and the other one didn't optimize at all. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a great idea. I just, I don't think the consumers are going to reward that uh, that farmer for his water consumption. I think that's the kind of thing that's going to have to be essentially rewarded at the governmental level with, uh, you know, rebates or uh, some type of incentive, you know, that's where, that's where a, a good functioning government can provide um, that kind of, uh, you know, positive reinforcement for smart water management. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, I won't get into farmer subsidies, <laughs> you know, but uh, I, I don't think consumers are going to reward that, um, at least not right now, because I think that there's so much uh, messaging static out there that I don't think consumers can process that much information. You know, they, they, can barely process the, with all due respect to consumers, they can barely process FDA labels and the impacts on those. So, you know, I think we're trying to make progress in some areas. Um, I, I think that's kind of what our role is here with the foundation. You know, we'll push those things out uh, on our uh, communication channels. Um, but I certainly would be open to hearing any good ideas like that. Um, how can you elevate awareness about you know, those, those farmers that are practicing um, you know, with uh, smart water usage? You know, I think they could also argue too, though, that um, you know, just right-sizing their, their water consumption is you know, good economics and good business. And they would tell you that too. So I think in that sense as well, that's where that's where the market really should function, you know, the, the the free market because you have a competitive advantage because you are using less resources, you're growing a great product. You know what I'm saying? Um, I don't know if that always works that way. I'm probably getting out of my uh, uh, my zone here, yeah. <laughs> especially when I come into food production, but. Uh, I think it's an interesting topic and, um, you know, I'm learning more about it. Exactly. And then one of my last questions, which is if I look um, to Wildland Foundation and the U.S. is quite big and you have different states with different, um, uh, different let's say, um, um, ecology and different atmosphere that you have. Some it's, it's, it's uh, warm, so it's cold. So it's like yeah. if you simulate... Europe and Africa, you can simulate it in the US. So you yes. have learned so many things. And if I just so correctly, you mentioned that's almost more than 50 million you reach per year. So there is so much learning there from 
that interaction between consumer and the water that you reach with your platform. Is there any way to leverage or to bridge that nowadays to outside US, like in Europe or in Africa? Because I see so many, the same problem. I just can share with you one, one from North Africa because I'm coming from North, North Africa. This year, they do have problem in agriculture. They don't have enough water, but because they realize, aha, we have exported so much agricultural stuff to Europe. Actually, we, we exported our water. So they realize that. Yeah. Uh, I think that there are some, uh, there are similarities in the issues. I think America is a great example because like you said, there, there are different uh, climate zones. And, you know, here in the Southern California, we live in a Mediterranean climate and we're facing, uh, you know, severe droughts here. Um, whereas we'll also work with states in the Northeast and, um, you know, we call them and they'll say, well, we have all the water we need. This is not an issue we need to uh, just, you know, deal with, but it's bigger than that. And that's the thing. Um, we may have a drought issue here in the Northeast. They have a runoff issue or, you know, in the uh, years ago, they had acid rain. Um, everybody has some issue with water that they can improve on. And I think uh, what we've learned here in the United States is um, that we have so many differences in, we, we have cultural differences here in the United States between the East Coast and the West Coast. And we have water use differences and we have climate differences. And um, I think that does translate, you know, to North Africa or South Africa, yeah, uh, you know, um, where they had the, uh, you know, day zero in, yeah. in yeah. South Africa. Um, I think we are in a pretty good place here in the United States. Um, if you've looked at it the way we have to, uh, uh, to have meaningful discussions in other countries about their issues, not that we, we can frame them the same way because we don't, you know, we don't have that kind of experience, but, uh, but I think we have enough uh, to add to those discussions. Right. Yeah. So uh, Steve's really good discussion with you. And then my last question to you about uh, Wyland Foundation, what you would like to share with my audience and anyone who would like, you know, to participate in, 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 uh, in this platform. Oh my gosh. Yes. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, we do have digital tools that people can use and uh, you can use them all around the world. So there's no, there's no barriers there. Uh, you can learn more about the foundation at uh, wylandfoundation.org. Um, and it, it, we always welcome questions and discussions and uh, uh, we're on Facebook and all the social media channels. So we encourage people there. Um, you know, if you like what you see, obviously support support us. Uh, we're a nonprofit, which means uh, all revenues go back into the program. So we're always looking to outside support. People want to donate, we'd happily <laughs> accept the donations. Um, and uh, um, yeah, come check us out. And uh, we just appreciate everything you're doing here, Hakeem, and you know, uh, giving people like us a a forum to share what we do. Really appreciate it and really appreciate the interview. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Steve. Thanks a lot.